This is a well-studied phenomenon in social psychology called the stereotype threat, where people perform worse when a negative stereotype of theirs is activated. There are two stereotypes at play with Jill. One. We have the perception that girls aren't supposed to like math. Two. People think Asians are geniuses and good at math. Now, depending on which identity of Jill's is activated, she will perform either better who grew up in Asian homes or worse. Of men and women. It isn't a subtle effect either. A 1995 study compared African-American students with their Caucasian counterparts. When there was no mention of their performance being assessed, black students did great. They solved an average of nine questions compared to eight for white students. But when their negative stereotype was activated, they answered only four. Richard Dawkins once defended a controversial tweet of his with the refrain that facts cannot be racist. But in some contexts, reminding a boy that he's black or Jill that she's a woman, it isn't a simple statement of fact. It becomes a deliberate message. On a farm in Missouri in 1924, Jean Bartik was born Betty Jean Jennings into a family of teachers. I could talk about how she attended a single-room school, how after graduating from school, she took a $25 loan from her Aunt Gretchen, My Aunt Gretchen and enrolled in Northwest Missouri State Teachers College. I could go on about how she was one of two math students at college, and they had to pull teachers out of retirement to teach two new courses just for her, and how she was the only math major from her college in 1945. I could tell you many more things about Jean, and a lot of it is enduring, but that's not the point of this story. So I'm going to summarize and make a judgment. She's smart. Jean's father was a teacher. Her grandmother, uncles and aunts were all teachers. So her family expected her to be a teacher. Many of her teachers told her to become a teacher. Because of the world war going on at that time, there was a shortage of teachers. The stars were perfectly aligned for Jean to become a teacher. But Jean, she wanted adventure. And so she applied to two jobs because they weren't teaching jobs. One of those was the job of a computer. You see, before the computers we know today existed, we had human computers. People that compute. They would do all the complex calculations required for businesses and scientists. Without electronics, if you had to calculate a complex expression, what would you do? You had logbooks and tables, but who did the calculations for the logbooks in the first place? Around the clock, radar. Big institutions had flesh and blood computers. People that were hired to do calculations in wholesale all day. They would use mechanical calculators and differential analyzers to help them. But these were a far cry from the magical electronic devices that we use today. They could only do the simple tasks that they were specifically made for. If you had a complex formula, you still had to break it down and feed it in piece by piece. It was a menial job for a mathematician. And so few men were interested. And it ended up that women, women like Jean, took these jobs because they were far more appealing than the alternative. In March 1945, after a long wait, Jean got a job offer. Finally, when they sent the offer, they sent it by telegram. And they said I was hired and to come immediately. Well, I was on the Wabash train out of 
stay married the next night. Oh and guess what? I was hired as an SP6 subprofessional. They did not give professional titles to women at Aberdeen, even if you had a PhD. Jean was hired as a computer at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Her job was to calculate ballistics trajectories for the war, to figure out where something shot out of their big guns would land. Now, the University of Pennsylvania is famous for a lot of things, but it just so happened that at the time, a secret project was brewing in the depths of their electrical engineering department. A giant electronic brain has started cogitating at the University of Pennsylvania. It's made a vacuum tube. Like ENIAC, electronic numerical integrator and computer. Brainchild of engineer Presper Eckert and physicist John Mockley and commissioned in top secret by the U.S. Army. Every computer student has read about it. In chapter one of their introduction to computers, it was the forefather, the first digital computer. The work of 20,000 people Remember when I was talking about how before electronics they had to hire people to do calculations? Well, ENIAC was the half million dollar project that aimed to change all that. They wanted to have a machine that could calculate, that could be adapted on the fly to any complex formula the generals threw at it. Where a ballistics calculation took over 20 hours for a human, ENIAC was designed to tear through it in just 30 seconds. This ability to be adapted for different formulae was key. Unlike the mechanical calculators that existed, ENIAC could be programmed with any arbitrary formula. Of course, programming at that point involved physically rewiring the machine and turning on and off a complex array of switches. It involved knowing the machine inside out, understanding the logic of how it worked, and having a highly mathematical mind. Well, guess who happened to have a highly mathematical mind? Eckert and Mockley invented a, a computer called the ENIAC. And so they went upstairs and found six of the mathematician uh, computers, the women, and asked them to come downstairs and start to work on the secret government project. So they handed the six women the wiring diagrams and said, you guys figure out how to do this. And this is how six mathematically gifted women became the first programmers of the first digital computer. Their names were Jean Bartik, Betty Hoberton, Kay Antonelli, Malin Meltzer, Fran Spence, and Ruth Teitelbaum. They were given only a wiring diagram and left to figure out how to get this 27-ton monstrosity of vacuum tube switches and cables working the way it should. By her own words, it was the best time of Jean's life. She had left Missouri because she wanted adventure and now she was at the cutting edge of mathematics, working with top-secret military technology and making it do things at speeds that the world then had never imagined. It was a job that demanded so much, and all six women discovered that they had been waiting for just that. Kay Antonelli compared the feeling to that of being a fighter pilot. On Valentine's Day in February, six months after they started, they had ENIAC ready to be shown to the world in a press conference. Arthur Burks, one of the designers of ENIAC, gave the presentation. I quote, One of the first things I did was to add 5,000 numbers together. Seems a bit silly, but I told the press, I am now going to add 5,000 numbers together and push the button. The ENIAC added 5,000 numbers together in one second. The problem was finished before the reporters had looked up. 
The main part of the demonstration was the trajectory. For this, we chose a trajectory of a shell that took 30 seconds to go from the gun to its target. Remember that human computers could compute this in three days, and the differential analyzer could do it in 30 minutes. The ENIAC calculated this 30-second trajectory in just 20 seconds, faster than the shell itself could fly. This was the beginning of the information age. That press conference may have single-handedly dictated how people viewed computers for decades to come, as larger-than-life heralds of the future. The science fiction of the 50s and 60s, they captured that awe. The next day, there was a celebratory dinner at UPenn. The six programmers were not even invited. Neither had they been introduced at the public press conference. There were photos of them with a computer, but people years later, even historians, were under the impression that they were refrigerator models, like the car models of today, posing to make the machine look good. Gene is very clear about how UPenn was full of great people, from Eckert and Mockley to the other engineers that she worked with. In her own words, quote, They were so honest, they were good men, and press worked constantly neither one of them were concerned with the women issue, unquote. Clearly, they were not left out because of spite or bitterness, but does it matter? I think the fact that they were not championed by their own, it makes it sting a bit more. If I were in their place, I would probably have a moment of self-doubt. Stereotype threat. What did Jean, Betty, Kay, Malin, Fran and Ruth do though? They dove back into work with undiminished focus. By 1947, collaborating with other pioneers in their field, they had converted ENIAC into a stored program computer. What this means is instead of having to change cables and physical connections in ENIAC to change the formula it was calculating, they could now just change its memory or its software. The apps that you use on your phone and computer are direct descendants of this idea. Have a machine with no specific behavior defined in hardware and let the software change how it behaves. For all practical purposes, ENIAC was the first stored program digital computer. And the six women, they were the first software programmers as we know them. Jean's story is just a thread that we're following, but she's not the only one. Betty Snyder, who Jean seems very fond of, invented breakpoints and debugging. Kay was apparently gifted at crafting loops. In making ENIAC a stored program computer, they had interacted with a lot of great minds, the ferocious John von Neumann for one. And he happened to be working on another little project at the same time, the Manhattan Project. And so ENIAC was used to simulate the first hydrogen bomb. The waves that this ancestor computer made are lapping at our feet even now. And these bright young mathematicians, they were at the center of it all. But while von Neumann is one of the first names a computer engineer learns about, and Eckert and Mockley became minor celebrities, these six ladies faded into obscurity. I don't mean hidden away in dusty academic journals. I mean removed completely. They were remembered vaguely as refrigerator models. In 1996, on the 50th anniversary of ENIAC's creation, none of them were going to be invited to the celebratory dinner again. 
but Kathy Kleiman in 1984 had had a moment of stereotype threat. As the classes that I took advanced, the number of women dropped significantly. And so by the time we got to the advanced classes, there was one, me, or maybe two women in the classroom. And I began to wonder, did women belong in computing? As a student in Harvard, Kathy loved programming. But as she searched for role models, she found few. Two, actually. Ada Lovelace and Grace Hopper. Kathy refused to believe that through 200 years of computing history, there were only two women of note. It was one day when she was looking through pictures of ENIAC that she noticed the women, standing head-to-head with the men in the photographs. Determined to find out who they were, she went to a historian at the Computer History Museum, where she was told that they were models. Something was not right. They didn't look like models to me. These women look like they know exactly what they're doing. Kathy embarked on a mission. In fact, it would become her doctoral thesis. She ended up seeing them for the first time at a dinner marking the 40th anniversary of ENIAC. She had come across many groups of men discussing the work that they had done, but also a group of four women. And I listened closely, and they were talking about the bug in their program the night before ENIAC's big demonstration. She spent the evening learning their story. For the first time, someone from the outside knew the role that these women had played. Fast forward to 10 years after this dinner, when the big 50th anniversary was coming up, and Kathy, now an attorney, was excited to meet them again. And so I called the university, I found the dean who was responsible for the anniversary. It was going to be a big deal, 50th anniversary of the first modern computer. And when I asked who was coming from the ENIAC programmers, he didn't know who I was talking about. Something had to be done. Kathy applied for a grant and set about recording their story. She made a documentary where she interviews them and uncovers their role in history firsthand. The documentary, called The ENIAC Programmers, released in 2013, 67 years after the ENIAC press conference. In that time, a lot had changed. Jean had left the industry to raise a family and ended up as a real estate agent. She had died in 2011. But thanks to Kathy Kleiman, she had received her due. Jean Bartik, while she was alive, was nominated to the Computer History Museum's Hall of Fellows in 2008, where she claimed her space among other computing legends like Lena Storvals, Steve Wozniak, Dennis Ritchie, and Tim Berners-Lee. This is a reality that Kathy directly created. Not by telling Jean's story, Shouldn't we be telling them but by seeking out her own. That the pioneers of STEM look like them, and that they come from all sorts of backgrounds, and that they all have role models. Today, a modest cell phone runs 20 million times faster than ENIAC. As you can see, the specs are very good on this one. Also, it has the powerful MediaTek G90. The IBM-built Summit supercomputer runs over 400 trillion times faster. Summit is a 200 petaflop supercomputer. And just as ENIAC once computed hydrogen bombs designed to kill people, Summit is currently calculating how to save them. It's using its big head to simulate how a certain virus folds its proteins in helping us find a cure. While these machines have always been superhuman, their contexts are consistently human. And if we squint a bit past their massive heads, I have an exceptionally large mind. we can see the people that built them. 
and maybe tell their stories. Here's the thing. There are always multiple stories to tell, whether it's in the past or about the future or in the present. And stories are not just fantasies. They shape the very core of who we are. There are multiple occasions in everyone's life where we have to choose who we want to be. And at those points, we need to carefully consider the stories that we tell ourselves. Going back to the whole thing about stereotype threat, let's run a new experiment, this time with an Indian person. Let's call him, um, I don't know, Babijit. And let's tell him that he has to make a podcast. At this point, we conveniently split the universe into two. Podcasts are just another internet cliche. And I'm just another random guy broadcasting into the ether. I have an overinflated sense for how interesting these stories are. I waste my time and others' time creating as pretentious and sincerity as weakness. I should probably just shut up. Or... I know it's not perfect, but I want to make something. I have a curious mind and a voice. I have the tools and skills to create an experience. A tiny bubble of reality. And if I can, I should. I wonder which universe Gene Bartik would have chosen. I believe that we're about as happy as we choose to be. So I choose to be happy. Thank you for listening to this, the second episode of The Unsung. This podcast was written, narrated and edited by me, Abhijit Shailanath. Original music was composed by me as Mudeth. Both maths and math are used as contractions for dramatic effect. Thanks to Kathy Kleinman for her patience and for the work she does. When she's not inspiring women programmers, she's also involved in the fight for electronic rights, freedom, privacy and other such noble ideas at the Washington College of Law. The ENIAC Programmers documentary can be viewed at eniacprogrammers.org. More information and references can be found at unsung.mudeth.org. That's Mike Uniform Delta Echo Tango Hotel.org. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do send me a message or leave a rating. You can find me at Podcast Unsung on Twitter. Goodbye. But despite all of this, you, um, you thrived. No, I didn't. I stopped and had children. <laughs>